We already did that bit. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we started off, we kind of broke it in half, our section. Uh, we looked last week at the importance of praying for all men, uh, you may recall. Today we're going to conclude our talk on prayer as we look at Christ, our intercessor. The reason we are able to pray to God is through our intercessor, Christ. Uh, so we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 this morning. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 to 8. And it goes like this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Quite a little bit there. You mind if I have a word of prayer before we get looking at it? Lord, we do thank you for this explanation of our your intercessing job for our prayer. I thank you that you're my go-between, my redeemer, who made yourself a ransom for all. We ask the power of your Holy Spirit to shed light on this passage as we look at it this morning. Guide us through it in your name. Amen. So, as you can see from today, we're looking at God in a very singular role, very specific role that he has. He has many roles. He is God Almighty. He built and created and ordained all of this universe. But this is one particular aspect of his job that we're going to take a look at. It's a role that only he can fulfill. So let's look again at verse 5. It says, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If we want to have an effective and a powerful prayer life, and I hope we do, that would have been a good spot for an amen. Uh, uh, if we want to have an effective and a powerful uh, prayer life, then we do well to realize that it's God himself that we're communicating with. And we're doing it through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I am communicating with God Almighty through the person of Jesus Christ. That's pretty heady stuff to think about, really. This isn't casual conversation. This isn't talking with somebody you meet in the street. You're talking with the creator of the universe through the power of his son. And through him, Jesus, we, as finite and sinful human beings, can enter into God's presence and make our requests for all men that we talked about last week, verse 1. Let's back up. Let's... I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We can do that on the grounds that we're talking to God Almighty through Jesus Christ, His Son. Now, as Paul describes God here, there's a few things that I ought to point out. First of all, Paul says, there is one God. 
Our God is a singular God. Do you realize that? There is none like Him. Throughout human history, there have been many things set up as gods. I'm not going to go into all the details of all the different gods that people have. Uh, but our God is a singular God. Now, when I think of that, our God is one, I know, I know exactly what Paul was thinking of uh, when he said that. He, he, he was thinking of what's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, He is one. That's what it says in English. Uh, the uh, Jewish congregations that were meeting just yesterday, with every time they go into their synagogue, that's how they open up, that's how they close. They open and close with the Shema. Now, let's think of this in the light of first century Ephesus. In first century Ephesus, there were pagan temples everywhere. You've heard of the Parthenon, right? That was right there. There were temples everywhere. Uh, and as we've mentioned before, nobody in, first, in the first century, nobody except Jews and Christians were monotheistic. Nowhere in the world was there anywhere that had one God. What do you mean one God? Can one God handle everything? They had, the Romans had gods for everything. They had gods for wine. They had gods for blacksmiths. They had gods for fishing. They had, you name it, there was a god for it. They had kind of puny gods that weren't able to handle the things that my god can handle. My god can, he created this world and he can handle it. See, Paul's already admitted to the church in Corinth that there were gods many and lords many, he said. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. The Roman world was full of gods and demigods. Uh, the gods were always philandering around, and they were half human, half gods, demigods wandering around all over the place. Uh, and Paul here is making the case that in reality, there is only one God. There's only one God. To Paul... The concept of a singular God is critical to proper theology. And we need to remember that today. As people are making cults and making gods out of various things, I mean, you can talk about all kinds of things. I can make examples if you want me to. I don't think we need to. And see, that's what makes verse 4 so profound. Uh, we looked at it last week. It says, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Proper theology is bound up in the concept of there is only one God. If there is one God who is unique and sovereign over all the other gods, then it makes sense to worship Him, doesn't it? I'm not denying that there are other gods. There certainly are. There are a god is anything that so, someone chooses to worship. There are other gods. I'm not slighting them. But there is one god who is supreme above them all. He's the one I choose to worship. And we ought to pray for all the people since that is, in fact, his will. His will is that we pray for all people. We ought to be doing that. If he is the supreme god, we ought to do his will. 
Now, Paul's being pretty concise here, but earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 6, which comes right after that last one that I just quoted, where he talked about there were gods many and lords many, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 6, he expanded on it by saying, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. He's the master of all, you see. I do suggest you go read that passage this afternoon. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, right around verses 5 down to verses 8 or 10. Uh, read that little passage there. He's the master of all. He's the mediator for all. Now, hand in hand with that concept of one God is the idea of one mediator for mankind. He's, they're both right in this same verse. There is one God... And there's one mediator between God and men. Now, the word uh, for men here, uh, it's mankind, it's anthropos. All mankind, men, women, children, everybody, any human being is included in that word. Anthropos. You've heard of anthropology, the study of human beings. It's a very inclusive word. Everybody... Uh, we saw it in verse 1, we saw it in verse 4, we see it here in verse 5, we're going to see it again in verse 6. Keep that concept in mind because I'm going to show you a different word later on today. All humans on earth at all times and in all places are encapsulated in anthropos. And we all exist because of the one God. And that's what makes our one mediator so important, you see. We're not various races. We are one mankind. And he is one God. Therefore, there must be one mediator. Not a mediator for the Jews, and a mediator for the blacks, and a mediator for the New Zealand Anzacs, and a mediator for the Australian Aborigines. No, there's one God, one mediator, because there's only one mankind. That's like what Jesus said. Uh, let's turn to John chapter 14. Verse 6. You all know it. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I heard a black preacher one time say that. He didn't say that he was a way. He said he was the way. That's how he said it. And that, that's absolutely right. That's exactly what his congregation said, too. They all got up and said, Amen. Uh, that, that's exactly how it went. We, we could do with a little bit more of that. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Something very similar. Jesus talking, he says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We've got one God, we've got one mediator, because there's one mankind. So who is this one mediator? The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. It says it right in our verse. See, the law cannot be our mediator. The law cannot unite us with God. 
Only Jesus can do that. Why? Help me out. What's that? Well, yeah, he's one. Uh, He's a man. He came here, he was born as a man. He's part of Anthropos. He's one of the human beings that was born. In that great big glob that we included all those people that we just talked about, Jesus is one of those. He's also God. He is part of that one God as well. Therefore, he can relate to both separate parties on equal terms. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 says, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Ephesians 2.18. So let's look to verse 16. Let's look at the qualifications. What qualified Jesus to be our mediator? Verse it says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What qualifies Jesus as our mediator? The fact that he died to redeem us. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. By the way, this is the only time that this word ransom shows up in the New Testament. The uh, Greek word is antilotron. Uh, In spite of that, it is related to several other words, which we do see elsewhere. Word is antilotron. So, anti is a prefix that changes and uh, modifies the root word, which is litron, litru, lutru. Uh, the word lutru is used throughout the New Testament in terms of a ransom or a redemption, a redemption price. Lutru is a term that was used to buy a slave out of a slave market. Antilotru, it means the person who pays the ransom. And he was that. That's your little Greek lesson for the day. Uh, Now, we're talking about redemption. We're talking about deliverance. We're talking about release. We're talking of the concept of purchasing a slave. Give me a second to build this thought, Diane. I'll come back to you. Uh, We see a similar word. The word lutru is used in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, Lutru, from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He redeemed us from all iniquity. That's Lutru. It brings the, it's a meaning of an exchange, but it's an exchange for... We've used the illustration of buying out of a slave market. You're buying something that doesn't really have a whole lot of value. And on top of that, Jesus gave one thing, himself, in exchange for something else, freedom for all people. But you see, Jesus' death was more than just a moral example for us. This is what you sh- we should do. You ought to do this. It was a complete self-sacrifice, don't you see? He gave himself, all of himself, so that we could be free. It was more than just a moral example. Go ahead, Diane. Well, 
Yep. It's, and people do the same thing today. Uh, hang on to that thought. I'm going to build on it a little bit at the very, very end. All right? I'm going to build on that just a little bit. Um, so we're talking about an exchange. Jesus exchanged himself for our freedom. And as I think about that exchange, I can't help but think about the inequity of the exchange. I already said, you're, you're buying something that's virtually worthless. This wasn't a prisoner for prisoner exchange, like Lutro sometimes means, uh, well, you captured one of our generals, we'll give you one of your generals that we've already captured and we're gonna swap generals. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, that would have been very common in Roman days, that would have certainly been covered by this word Lutro. But this was a different sort of exchange. This was the exchange of a flawless, sinless Son of God being exchanged for a sinful, spiteful, backstabbing human being. Do you see the inequity of that exchange? That's the real wonder of redemption in my mind. It wasn't a one-for-one, -one, everybody makes out all right deal. Not at all. Christ gave this sacrifice for all, it says. Now, once again, I have to point out that Paul is not advocating universalism. He's not talking about universal salvation. We talked about it last week. All is referring to all kinds. It's encapsulated in that word anthropos that we're talking about. All humankind, black, white, yellow, red, doesn't matter. Christ's redemption is available to all mankind, whether you're Jew or Gentile, free or slave, male or female, everybody. Salvation's available to all who desire it. Now, that ransom, one other thing about it, it says that it's to be testified in due time. That ransom is going to be testified in due time. Testified simply means that it's been witnessed. It's been witnessed. Now, by Paul's day, there were many witnesses of all walks of life all over the world who could testify to the saving power of Christ. Can you testify to it in your life? You're part of this verse that it's talking about. You're testifying in due time of the redemption that Jesus Christ paid for your freedom. That's what we're referring to today when we talk about your testimony. You're, that's your testifying to the fact of your redemption. Do you see how these terms work that we use? If we sometimes use these terms in church and we don't really think about them that much. Your testimony is attributing, yes, Jesus Christ redeemed me from the slave market of sin, and he can do that for you. The ransom's been testified in due time. Verse 7. Whereunto, we're talking about that testimony, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Paul's explaining why he serves as a witness. Why he shares his testimony. Because he's ordained a preacher and an apostle. He was ordained. Paul, Paul has a divine commission. Paul had a very strong sense of the hand of God in his life. 
we see that, let's turn over to Galatians chapter 1, very similar wording. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. And now he gets into a different thought here. But it pleased God. God commissioned him. God said, you've got this task. God, Paul was called by God to this job as a preacher and an apostle. It was nothing that Paul sought out. In fact, we've talked about this many, many times, he was doing the exact opposite. He was trying to kill people who were testifying. He was actively hunting down preachers and apostles. And then God commissioned him, said, no, I got a different job for you, Paul. And that's what gave Paul confidence in his message, by the way. And that's why, as a result, Paul worked at that task tirelessly. By the way, you and I have that same commission. We ought to work just as tirelessly. But on top of his God-given credentials, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ and I lie not. Paul's really emphasizing the truth of his claims, isn't he? I speak the truth, and not only do I speak the truth, but I don't lie. Paul's contrasting himself with the false teachers around. We've already talked about that. It was one of the things Timothy was going to have to face. Here he is in Ephesus. There's a lot of false teaching going on. Their whole enterprise is based on a pack of lies and self-appointed qualifications. Sound familiar? We see it all around us, don't we? They're actively trying to undercut Paul, and they're trying to undercut Timothy with the things that they teach. Paul says, I speak the truth, and I lie not. And that can set us all apart. In a world that's full of lies and full of untruth, we can set ourselves apart just by telling the truth. We don't even have to do anything else. Just tell the truth, and you're going to be unique. In today's society, right? It's getting easier and easier for us. Verse 8. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So now Paul's shifting gears. This verse here is kind of a transition to what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. Paul's going to start telling Timothy about worship priorities. Worship priorities. We saw last time, verses 1 and 2, that were focused on prayer. Then verses 3 through 7 that we just finished working on showed the work of Christ, which makes that prayer possible. Christ is our mediator. Here in verse 8, we see the thought process return again to the idea of prayer. Prayer ought to be the focus of our worship. And he starts this verse right off with, Therefore... Which again, lets us know that this is not a new thought. Based on what we've just looked at from verse 3 to verse 7, therefore, we ought to come right back around to prayer. We come right back around to prayer. He's bringing us back to the main point, which is worship and prayer. And that's, remember as we go into 
I'm going to get into dangerous territory next couple of weeks. We're going to be into uh, stuff where people get highly offended. It starts talking about what women ought to wear, what men ought to do, how, how things ought to be, and what women ought not to teach. It's all in respect to worship service, proper worship of God. Bear that in mind for the next couple of weeks as we go through that. The concept is coming back to the idea of worship and prayer. But notice where this attitude of prayer is supposed to be present. Where's, where are we supposed to have this attitude of prayer? Look to our text. It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. That's the only place we're supposed to pray. Everywhere. Everywhere we're to be praying. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? It was to be the case in Ephesus. And it ought to be the case here in Surrey, New Hampshire. And this afternoon I'm going to be in Sullivan. It ought to be the case there. And tomorrow I'm going to be in Albany, New York. And it ought to be the case there. Everywhere we ought to be praying. Notice who's supposed to be doing this worship. Men. By the way, I told you, this is not Anthropos. This is not Anthropos. This is not all mankind. This is a very different word. It specifically refers to the male of the species. This is a very gender-specific directive that we're looking at. By the way, can I get on a political soapbox just for a second? These people who are trying to spread how many genders there may be, uh, don't, they don't take into account any language except English. Almost all other languages in the world have both male and female terms. We're going to look at the female term of this Greek word next time when we get together, where we're going to look at women. It's specifically for women, not trans women. Not The female of the species will be referred to next time. Today we're looking at the male of the species. Enough said. Uh, this is for all adult males in God's church. This is how all adult males in God's church ought to be worshiping. Now, I know the question you're asking yourselves. Does this mean that women can't worship and can't pray? No, of course not. Obviously not. But rather, this command needs to be made to men specifically. Why? You could go there. We ought to be the leading of the worship, and it's not a male tendency, is it? It's not a tendency of males to lead worship. It's something that we fail at quite a lot. The next phrase points to some specific issues that can taint men's worship as well. Less likely to impact women's worship. It says, without wrath and doubting. Men tend to have a lot more wrath and a lot more doubting than women do, don't they? This is a specifically male issue. Uh, without wrath and doubting. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but just keep it in mind. But why such a specific call to prayer? Shouldn't it just go without saying that we ought to be praying and we ought to be praying everywhere? I mean, we all know that, right? Pretty common sense. I'm not going real deep into anything right now. But if we're honest, I think we could all admit that our prayer lives could use a little bit of tightening up, right? 
We talked about that at length last week. I'm not going to bother doing that again. In most churches, corporate prayer, prayer as a, as a worship, is pretty much dead. Pretty much dead. Uh, Jesus preached a great deal about corrupt and hypocritical prayer in the Gospels. You know, I made a statement last week. I was up here and I pointed out just the simple fact that we have more instances of Jesus praying than of Jesus preaching. So then I started looking at some of the examples of Jesus preaching this past week when I'm sitting in a hotel room, and I realized that about a third of the times Jesus was preaching, he was preaching about praying. And that puts even more perspective onto it, doesn't it? When we don't see Jesus praying, he is preaching, but when he's preaching, he's preaching about praying. That's interesting. It seems to be a pet topic of his. I think we could do well to study that. It's a weakness that's plagued the church from the very beginning. A weak prayer. But it says, there's an interesting phrase in here. It says, lifting up holy hands. When you're praying, lifting up holy hands. That's an imagery from Old Testament times. Throughout the Old Testament, we see different characters, Abraham, Moses, and stuff. We see them described as lifting up their hands and imploring God for one thing or another. Even Jesus. Let's, let's look at Jesus. It's always good to look at Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 50. This is Jesus. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Even Jesus, when he was praying, had this attitude of lifting up his hands to pray as he prayed for the multitude. It's an action that shows an appeal to God and expecting results. That's the picture. You're lifting up your hands as if you're expecting to receive an answer to the question you just asked or the request you just made or the intercession you just made, whatever it may be. You're expecting to receive something. And you know what? Quite often, the church, when we're praying, right here in Surrey, us, us, Bethel Bible Church, when we're praying, we're not really expecting God to do anything, are we? We're just like that church in Acts chapter 12 that were praying for uh, Peter to be released from prison. Peter gets released from prison. The prison doors are shaken right off their hinges. The angel leads Peter out, takes him right to the gate. The girl comes out to meet Peter at the gate and says, Hey, you know, we're praying about Peter. Uh, here he is. He's at the gate. And the people said, No, nah, that's not Peter. That's, that's just a ghost. And they didn't let him in. They were praying. Read that story. Acts chapter 12. That is the church in America today. We pray, but we're flapping our lips and we're not amounting to anything because we're not expecting God to do anything. In contrast to that, can I give you a historical, you want a history lesson? I'm going to take you back to August 1864. Uh, you've heard of Andersonville Prison, right? Uh, American Civil War, terrible, terrible prison. Uh, Confederate prison camp. Uh, people were tortured, people were treated very, very badly at Andersonville Prison. It's August 1874. They had a phenomenal drought. It was extremely hot. It's just outside of Atlanta. Extremely hot. Everything was dry. The prisoners were denied water. They were denied water for pretty much the whole summer. People were dying of thirst. The water table in Atlanta, Georgia, and specifically at Andersonville Prison, is 70 feet below 
So you couldn't dig a well. Even if you had tools, you really can't dig a well. It's 70 feet below the surface. There's no hope for water. We don't know his name, but somebody who was kind of in charge of the prisoners there at Andersonville Prison suggested that they ought to have a prayer meeting. So they had a prayer meeting. They prayed, and the next thing they knew is a spring that they call Redemption, or Providence Springs. Providence Springs bubbled up out of the ground there, and you know it's a fountain to this day. Everything else around Andersonville Prison Grounds is still to this day dry. The water table still 70 feet below ground, but this Providence Spring in the middle, right in the middle of Andersonville Prison Grounds, you can go there. That's the result of praying and expecting God to do something. Did you know our God is powerful? Our God is the one God. And if we pray and expect Him to do something, He will do something. See, we, we pray and we don't expect Him to do anything. That's where the next phrase comes in. It says, without wrath and without doubting. We pray doubting all the, ah, God's not going to, that's not Peter out there. Let's talk about praying without wrath and without doubting. We ought to be passionate in our prayer, hadn't we? But we shouldn't allow that passion to degrade into wrath. That's all wrath is, misguided passion. We ought to be in peace with God and with our fellow believers. Wrath had not ought to be a mark of a Christian. Let's see what Jesus had to say. Wow, I turned right to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Jesus talking. He says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus tells us not to even come to our worship service if our heart is not right. Don't even show up. I'd rather you didn't show up. We'd be better off to get our heart right first than to worship in the wrong attitude. And did you know, speaking of wrath, that angry men who have a passion for being right all the time are a threat to true worship? It's a threat to true worship. They destroy proper worship. And the church would be better off if they just stayed home. You see why this is addressed specifically to men? Because it's not really a female tendency. We'll get to the female tendencies next week. Uh, you're not off the hook. Uh, but this is very serious stuff to Paul. We see how it interacts with all aspects of ministry. As we're going to continue marching through this book, we're going to see little things in your lifestyle that can disrupt worship and can disrupt your ministry and disrupt your prayer life. That's what uh, the whole book of 1 Timothy is really about. We're just coming into the real meat of the book now. We need to lay the groundwork here. Ministry will never be effective without a proper foundation of prayer and the mediating work of our Redeemer Christ. Mind if I thank him for it?
Lord, we do thank you for being our Redeemer. And that qualifies you to be our mediator. Without you, I wouldn't want to exist. You are a gracious God. Again, I ask that you'll strengthen us to share that grace with this world around us that's so full of lies and untruth. Help us to share the truth that you offer. You are the one God, our one Redeemer, our one Mediator. And we thank you in your name. Amen.